Hello, and welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast. Today, I have a great guest. This is going to be a very unique and different type of conversation. It'll be a little bit more esoteric than we typically have on the Next Frontier podcast. But I think that what Namrata and I are going to talk about are extremely important issues on a geopolitical and macroeconomic scale that will serve as a fantastic innovation resource for you as you're thinking about what your business is capable of in the near term where your business is accessing different uh, resources that you're currently using. And you'll understand what I mean by that as we get into the conversation. And when you think about what are the commodities, what are the, the hard materials that you have access to? Where do they come from right now? What do the supply chains look like for those right now? And, and where 25 years from now will the abundance of those materials come from? And I'll just drop a quick hint that we'll probably dive into asteroid mining because it's one of my favorite topics. And Namrata happens to be a expert on the subject. Um, so Namrata, I would love to start by asking you, heading into 2020, we just started the new year. What are you most excited about? How do you describe yourself uh, as we head into this hopefully um, interesting, yet fun, safe, successful, and healthy year? Oh, thank you, Max, for having me. It's a great pleasure. So uh, entering the year 2021 has been exciting because we, of course, came from two years, 2019, 2020, that saw something unprecedented in my lifetime, which is a pandemic. And despite that, uh, I have seen that, especially when it came to innovation digitally and also in space, there has been extremely interesting strides from countries like, say, China and India. Now, myself, what I'm most excited about 2021 is that I have a book project that I'm working on, which is looking at China's political culture and its notion of territoriality. I have been meaning to write this book for a very long time because I see that when we talk about countries like China or India, there seems to be a lack of understanding of their political structure and their own sense of who they are. So that's what I'm working on for the next year. The second project that I have been asked to write on is that why does the United States need a space force? So that, again, is a very interesting policy question, and it's very new. But then if you recollect, the conversation around establishing a separate service is very old. It's more than 30 years old. So that's the two projects that I'm most excited about. Uh, I have my own consultancy. I have been uh, working for that for the last five years. And it's been actually very exciting, interactive, and fulfilling for me to, this, to do this kind of work. So I, I, I think to give the audience a better, better understanding of why, why we're having this conversation and how this, how this ties into innovation resources, it would be really helpful if you could lay out what the, what the current state of United States-China relations are. Uh, and my follow-up question to that will be if you could lay out what the current state of space policy is, um, specifically as it comes to U.S.-China relations, China, let's call them for lack of a better term, allied relations, so US, India, uh, I would even probably put the UAE in there at this point. Um, I'm not sure if you would, you're the expert, so I guess we'll defer to you on that, on that question. But can you lay the groundwork for what the international landscape looks like um, from a relationship perspective, and then maybe tie that in to a space policy perspective um, and if you could also, I'm asking a lot in this, uh, in this, in this little question here, but if you could also tie into some of the practical ways that space is used, um, by people every day. So GPS satellites from the United States, GPS satellites from China, things like this. <clears throat> sure. 
Uh, absolutely. So if you look at the international landscape, if you want to talk just about U.S.-China relation today, uh, coming into the new Biden administration, what you see is that the relationship between China and the U.S. has been competitive under the Trump administration. There has been uh, sanctions placed on China. There are uh, difficulties with regard to China's behavior in the South China Sea. Uh, Mike Pompeo has called out China for being aggressive in that particular area. So the relationship as we go into the new year is not at its best. There is a notion of distrust. There is the notion that China is doing things that it's aiming to overtake the United States, for example, in space. And then there is also a lot of distrust given the COVID-19 pandemic that is traced back to Wuhan, China. And I think the impact of that has been very deep because China in the beginning did not want to take any responsibility, did not open up its data as to how this happened. And you can see that the conversations around that were pretty conflictual between both countries. Now, given that context, we also have to remember that historically U.S.-China relation had been set within the notion of the Cold War. So you're also dealing with two very different political structures. So China, of course, is a one-party system. It's an authoritarian system based on just one party basically dominating policy structure, innovation that we are talking about, space policy. And so the United States, on the other hand, is a very different political system. It's a democracy based on multiple actors, elections that we saw recently, a very strong innovative sector, and also a very strong sector that draws in a lot of immigration as well, unlike China. So you're clearly dealing with two very different political and economic systems to my mind. Now, in terms of the landscape, if we locate it within space policy. So um, if you look at US-China space policy, at the state level, in terms of policy itself, they cannot collaborate or cooperate because of a 2011 congressional ban on the particular cooperative framework. The biggest fear in 2011 was that there could be intellectual property theft, that China would not be very transparent in terms of its own space technology development. And so that's the reason why they had the particular legislation. It still holds today. So you cannot have a space policy cooperation between, say, NASA and the state China National Space Administration. Now, that said, what has changed in the last few years is that China has started investing in very critical space supply chain. And so, which, which you mentioned about in terms of innovation. So for example, under President Xi's innovation policy and strategy, there are three priority areas that they're focusing on. One is of course, the development of 5G. Second is the development of artificial intelligence. And third is the development of their own private space sector. So if for that particular innovative cycle, what they have done is that they have offered subsidies, they've offered uh, you know, a guidance called Document 60 to actually encourage that particular cycle. Now, China is also very critically aware that when you're looking at supply chains, especially for, let me give you an example. For example, say in the telecommunication industry, for example, semiconductors, which they depend on on Taiwan. So they are starting to actually develop those particular critical supply chains in their own country now. So Shenzhen, where you have Foxconn's manufacturing hub, has actually emerged as one of the sectors that they are trying to basically dominate. A very similar structure you can see in space from being dependent on Russia for technology uh, cooperation in terms of space, China has actually started to invest in their aerospace engineering 
uh, talent pool, their scientists' talent pool. They are starting to pay higher salaries to their own labor force. And you can see that in the last few years, they have actually started doing more indigenous innovation. And that's the focus of China's space policy. Now, compared to that, the United States space policy is also interesting, especially on the the Trump administration. So before President Trump, you had President Obama, who basically opened up the space sector for commercial asteroid mining, as you were talking about, by the Commercial Space Launch Competitive Act 2015, which is also called the Asteroid Act. So that particular act enabled American citizens to basically if they go to a particular celestial body and uh, are able to mine a particular resource, they can own it. So you could see that that particular econosphere, I call that that because it means that you can profit. And that's what innovators and companies that invest in those technologies care about a lot. That if you have an investment, what is the guarantee that you can actually profit from that? So that particular legislation enabled that. Now, under President Trump, that was actually moved much more forward. So you had, for example, his executive order last year, April 6th, that talked about American citizens being able to utilize space resources. And now you have actually NASA, which is planning to sign international cooperations with other countries regarding the moon. And so, for example, if you want to do lunar mining or lunar utilization of resources, you have NASA that signed agreements with, say, the UAE, Canada, Italy to actually build that kind of a framework. So what is important from a policy perspective is that the discourse on space has changed today. And I'm not saying this, that it's going to happen in the next 20 years. Actually, it's already happened. It's no more about just going somewhere first or doing something for a few days and coming back. It's becoming more and more about developing a sustainable permanent presence in space, including the moon, especially from a space resource perspective. And you have companies today in the US that would tell you that they're actually probably able to do a demonstration capability on say the lunar surface in the next 10, 15 years, especially mining. The final question about how does space affect us? So as you mentioned, for example, in a country like India, space infrastructure is not just used for GPS. It's also used for weather forecasting. It's used for agriculture monitoring. It's used for fishery. It's used for telemedicine. It's used for teleeducation. It's actually used to reach some of the remotest areas where you do not have fiber-based, say, internet connectivity through satellite-based internet. So you can see that the impact of space is extremely deep in our everyday life. Let's take the example of the US. Now you're talking about having satellite-based broadband services almost everywhere in the US. There are areas that I go to for hiking in North Carolina that does not have the internet. My phone goes out of service and I cannot connect. Now, the basic idea is that you, if you have a satellite-based internet support system, you can actually access the internet without it being cut off because you have no cell towers, right? So it's deeply impactful that way. Space is used not just for, again, in the U.S. for GPS. You also use it for e-commerce, even your ATM transactions that we do every day. It's all dependent on that kind of support space infrastructure. And that's why I say the world is waking up to this possibility. And the return of investment from the satellite-based industry itself today is $400 billion. That's not a small industry. 
And by 2030, it's going to be in the tune of $1.2 trillion. And that's so just from satellites. That's yeah. not from reusable launch vehicles. That's no. not from any of the other on-orbital capabilities. That's just from satellites that are in orbit, beaming that's either right. images back down to Earth or communication signals. Yeah, just, just, I'm just talking about the satellite-based industry. If you're including, for example, space resources, or you're including the return of investment, say by 2050, say from the moon, it's going to be in the trillions of dollars. So it's not going to be limited to just 1.2 trillion. That's forecasted. So, so lots of questions to follow up. One personal narrative, very similar to the North Carolina narrative. I was actually in North Carolina, but I was hiking alone and I was off the grid and my, I knew that I wouldn't have cell service. And so I was thinking, I was racking my brain, how am I going to be able to uh, to stay connected? So I did my research and I was like, okay, what's an affordable civilian satellite communications device? And I found a really cool device called a Garmin InReach Mini. It's the size of my palm. It weighs a few ounces. And for like $50 a month, I can have a satellite uplink whenever I need it, as long as I have a clear view of the sky and I can be be uh, be logged in. Um, I saw a really cool video of a uh, someone who lived in a rural area. And this is, this is and from my perspective, for, for folks in the audience, this is something we've talked about before of being able to live where you want as a unique innovation resource. If you can work on your company, you can you work on your industry, you can work on your factory. Uh, where land is cheap, where there's a lot of resources, but there might not be a lot of communications infrastructure. You can beam, I saw a cool video of someone who is beta testing uh, SpaceX's Starlink satellites. He lived on a remote farm in Montana and he showed how he had his satellite dish looking right up at the sky and he booted up his SpaceX Starlink uh, beta. Starlink, by the way, is SpaceX's uh, constellation of Numerata. Do you know how many satellites they have up right now? I think they have about 30,000, but right now I, I don't remember the number. So I think they have a few hundred up right now, but yeah, this, it's, it's, this, it's this orbiting um, constellation of satellites that the theory is you can beam internet, like Namrata was saying, down to anywhere on the earth. So this farmer in Montana, he was beaming internet and he finally had internet access. And, and the guy's like, I can finally access my email and more efficiently communicate with the customers who I need to service. And time when my truck's going to come pick up. I don't remember what he was farming, whatever he was farming on his farm. And that's a phenomenal transformative innovation capability that's made possible by space and a lot of the work that you do in space policy, helping countries communicate and collaborate to make sure that the existing space resources that we have of, of, of different orbits, different bandwidths, um, can can actually have an innovation resource and economic impact. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll just add to that because, uh, I mean, I've also traveled to remote areas in the India-Burma border for field work. And believe me, I was without any access to the internet for about 20 days because there is no cell phone tower or there is no capability for fiber-based internet. And the people there, think of the problems they have. So, for example, they cannot, communic- they cannot take part in the e-commerce industry. For example, you have a small business that sells handicrafts and wants to sell it on an Amazon platform. Amazon is also available in India. But because of the lack of uh, access to internet, forget broadband, even the slowest internet, they're just not able to do it. So now you have a very similar to Star uh, SpaceX, uh, you know, dream of Starlink, you have an Indian uh, satellite company called Astron who wants to send up about 140 satellites that's going to beam in satellite-based internet to the remotest areas that I'm talking about, where then you empower a small business owner who's uh, basically wanting to sell his handicrafts on the internet uh, and, and enable that person. So it's actually 
deeply empowering. And not just that, it's also it also helps communities to get profit for their businesses because now they can sell on an e-platform. And not just that, for example, access to e-banking, you know, which is critical now for any transaction, digital, uh, you know, digital transfer of money. Some of those services, because we live in the United States, we take them for granted. But actually around the world, they're still not available because of the lack of fiber-based capability, which they have not set up. But that's why I think when you listen to Elon Musk's conversations, he argues that if you have Starlink up by a particular date, you'll be able to actually benefit societies around the world. And then the other important concept, which I, I haven't looked into much, but what I hear is that, for example, you can also then monitor uh, services. So, for example, if you want to use a satellite-supported drone to go somewhere to uh, deliver services in an area that is completely cut off, that, again, is a big, big you know, uh, innovation. Think of a situation where you have an earthquake where you're not able to reach a particular community. We use helicopters, but then you can also use unmanned drone services for that exact same capability. And I think uh, there are people working on uh, in uh, delivering such supplies, for example, in remote countries in Africa. There's a company called Zipline that does just that with blood delivery. That's freaking awesome. And we'll, we'll yeah. link a video in the show notes of them shooting their their drone airplane uh, with 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 the blood supply to some remote village in Africa. Um, so there's there's an interesting. Well, actually, one one quick joke before that happens, but there's no Bitcoin in India without access to the internet. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. You can't transact with it unless you have. Uh, so for all the talk of digital currencies, digital currencies and any form of wealth wealth transfer or transaction needs to happen via satellite internet or fiber, but fiber is very hard to lay down. One interesting um, tangent that I don't think that we briefed, that, that we were, that we briefed on, but it just popped into my brain. Can you talk a little bit about what the, what the, um, uh, one belt, one road initiative in China, uh, how that ties back into this space ecosystem. So if you have a satellite, you need ground stations, you need communications infrastructure. You can't just have a satellite and have it beam, beam signals into your brain from orbit. Uh, so I think it could be interesting if you could tell us a little bit um, what you know about the One Belt, One Road initiative, and then what the current competitive landscape looks like between United States companies uh, and then the Chinese government by by means of, you know, Chinese Chinese CCP-controlled companies, what the competitive landscape looks like for companies and entrepreneurs and innovators trying to break into Africa, break into South America, break into India with the actual ground station communications infrastructure. Sure, absolutely. So the Belt and Road Initiative, which is also called the One Belt, One Road Initiative, was envisioned by the Chinese Premier uh, Xi Jinping. And so he started this concept in 2013. So the idea is to develop three different components of infrastructure building. One is the Asian road network system. So what you do is that you build roads and infrastructure in areas that do not have access to that. And so it covers almost the entire South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, right up to Europe. And, uh, and their plan is to build a transcontinental railroad as well, connected to that particular Belt and Road Initiative. It also includes Europe in their map. Um, and so, so, so it wants to go from Africa through Asia up to up to China and then back down through, say, India, Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. So India, Afghanistan, and then it wants to go to Central Asia, but it also wants to go from Yunnan, China to Bangladesh. India is not part of the Belt and Road Initiative. 
So, but Bangladesh is, and so and Nepal is. So you then have railroads and roads built through that particular area circumventing India. And so there are certain countries that have not joined into the initiative for security reasons and for, and for fear of Chinese encirclement, and India is one of them. So, um, and so the Belt and Road Initiative has a third, third in component, which is the Space Information Corridor. So why, what do I mean by that? So what it means is that China has just last year in 2020, uh, launched the 55th satellite that has completed their independent Beidou navigation system. So it's an alternative to the US GPS maintained by the US Space Force now before it was- I'm maintained. sorry, how do, how do you spell the Chinese, the Chinese uh, constellation? It's B-E-I-D-O-U, Beidou. Ah, Baidu, got it, okay, Yeah. cool. So, so uh, what, what I mean is that, so once you have an independent uh, navigation system, their aim was to build that by 2020. They announced that in 2010. And so they have done that. Now, the basic reason is not just that they are wanting to use this capacity for just diplomacy. They also did a return of investment uh, analysis of how much it costs them to establish the entire structure and what is the return of investment every year. So from the China Navigation Satellite Office, the assessments uh, that they put out a few years ago is that the investment for setting up the Beidou was about $9 billion, but the return of investment is about $59 billion annually. So it's a huge return of investment. So there's a reason why they have invested in this system. So what does the Beidou do? Of course, it will offer you navigation services. It'll help uh, you know, companies that depend on navigation for their services. It's going to help their military as well as other militaries for precision navigation, you know, for uh, targeting, for missile, uh, you know, deployment. Uh, and the more important point is that they are saying that, and this is a claim, so we'll have to wait and see, that the Beidou will be actually 100% more uh, accurate than the GPS. So it'll actually be able to get you to an address to the point of just a few meters out of place in remote areas. Even so against GPS-3? Yes, yes. So that's their, that's their claim. We, we, that hasn't been proven as yet, but that's what they're planning to build. Got so it. they have different versions, the BDS-1, which was a much more rudimentary. Then they had the BDS-2, which was upgraded. And now they have the BDS-3. The US GPS is also upgraded. You know that satellites are launched to the, so that you have better navigation precision capability. And so they are actually offering the Beidou as part of that. Now the Belt and Road Initiative offers the Beidou navigation system for free to those countries that sign on to the BRI. Now that's a big advantage because then you get some services without having to pay for them. But could I, could I, could I jump in and ask one quick question? Uh, just, just to clarify uh, for the audience, could you just quickly just go on a quick tangent and then we can loop back here about how the current GPS system works and is funded and is paid for. Um, you know, how did it get up there? Who maintains it? And, and how do countries access it and pay for it? How do private companies access and pay for it? I think that might help paint a little bit more color. Yeah, sure. So the GPS as it stands today is, of course, uh, that was developed by the U.S. government in 1963. Since 1963, it's part of the GPS Navstar uh, constellation. And so uh, and, and in the beginning, when it was thought of developing, it was more about 
using that particular navigation system for military communication, navigation capability. Today, and at that time, in fact, I would urge your audience if they are interested in how that particular navigation system was developed, there's a book called The Strategy of Technology. So it's available uh, online. I can send you the link so you can post it for your podcast so listener. Thank you very much. Yeah, so that book basically tells you how the GPS was developed. So it was first funded, developed by the U.S. Uh, military, especially the Defense Advanced Research Space Agency. And then they kind of opened it up for commercial capability. It's completely maintained by the U.S. Air Force because before the Space Force was launched, uh, uh, in 2019. So it's military uh, maintained and military, even the satellites that are launched by the US military, basically you can use either a government rocket launcher or you can use SpaceX Falcon 9 to launch and upgrade the system. So it's completely government maintained and taxpayers money that funds the GPS. Now, what is interesting is that the GPS is available for people all over the world. So it's not just US customers, anybody, especially companies, if they want to have that into their systems, can pay for it, and then they can actually get access to it. And we get access to it, of course, through our own access to our cellular phones or the internet. So it's it's a completely government-funded uh, you know, service. Now, the Chinese Beidou navigation system is also a government-funded, completely, absolutely funded by the government. The basic idea for developing the Beidou navigation system was that it came out of a concern that happened in 1996. Now, this is a very interesting uh, development in strategic thinking. So in 1996, if, uh, for your audience, the US-China had a confrontation in the Taiwan Straits. So at that time, Taiwan, which is not recognized as an independent country by China, but as a part of China. And of course, as you know, Taiwan uh, functions as a representative democracy, which is self-governing. So there's a one China principle, but uh, the important point is Taiwan argues that they are the legitimate country that represents China. And China argues that no, China is the actually the mainland China is actually the legitimate country that represents uh, China. Now, they claim that Taiwan should become part of China and they are very aggressive whenever they see that Taiwan has made some movements to become independent. So in 1996, uh, there was this uh, you know, referendum that was supposed to be held where it was on independence. And at that time, uh, when, when there was this conversation around it, Chinese PLA uh, you know, basically demonstrated military capability and actually went into the Taiwan Straits to threaten Taiwan from not declaring independence. Now, and they launched two missiles into the Taiwan Straits. Now, the missiles at the time were dependent on U.S. GPS for their navigation and for their, uh, you know, uh, precision guidance uh, capability. Now, there is allegation from the Chinese side that they lost uh, any kind of eye, any kind of sight onto their missiles because the U.S. Air Force switched off the GPS in the Pacific. And so if you listen to the conversations coming out of China right after that in 1997, especially for the PLA Academy of Military Sciences, they realized that they need to develop their own navigation system so that they are not dependent on the US GPS. 
because of what happened in conflict. And that's how the, and, and, and it's, this, is, this is a bit of interesting strategic conversation because the US GPS also started as a military program, as I told you, and the Chinese GPS also started, the global positioning system also started as a military need and now has become much more than just military navigation system because they realize the commercial viability of it. And so, uh, and so, and, and the important point is that it's not privately owned, it's completely owned by the Chinese government. By that, that it, uh, what I mean is that it is basically controlled and governed by the Chinese Communist Party. So to loop it back around, so you were describing how China is implementing this One Belt, One Road initiative, and a major part of that One Belt, One Road initiative is a space communications infrastructure or a communications infrastructure, uh, or a space, uh, I, I think you described it as a space guidance infrastructure to compete with GPS. Uh, and they wanted to achieve that by 2020, and they finally have achieved that, but now they're offering it to, to other countries, let's say second and third world countries, uh, for free to kind of get them to buy in and recruit them into the One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, is that a good description of, of, of where you left off? Yes, because, in, and, and so you have to become a member though. So uh-huh. by mem- and so this is again, very interesting, right? So their business model is this, that you sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative by which you sign on to not just the space information corridor, but you also sign on to getting Chinese loans from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And you use those loans to basically fund Chinese in, uh, infrastructure development companies to work in your areas which require, for example, a road or a bridge or a railroad, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a basic, it's very interesting. So if you, if you listen to how it works, let me give you a more concrete example. So for example, Sri Lanka signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. And the idea was that China would then develop Sri Lanka's port authority. So the ports around the city of Colombo will be developed by China based on Chinese loans and Chinese uh, workers. Now the deeper uh, economic uh, content of this is that once you sign on to the BRI, you will, as an addition, get access to their Beidou navigation system. So it's not free if you put it in a larger context, because what it does is that it, first of all, the interest rates are not very low. And so if you fail to, or if you default on your loan, then there are conditions that are set. For example, you'll then give lease of your port to Chinese uh, ships for free. So there are these quid pro quos, which are written in the fine print. And if you study it, you realize it. The second important point is that if you have a dispute, say, for example, on the BRI contract, uh, you know, uh, conversations, or if there is some kind of difference between the country and a Chinese uh, contracting firm, you have to go to the China Commercial International Court for your dispute to be resolved, which is in Beijing and Shanghai. So it's Chinese legal system that will then decide who is going to be the, how is the dispute going to be resolved? So it, when you when I say that it's free, it's free when you talk about just say uh, access to say their navigation system, right? Especially if you're a member of the Belt and Road, but you just don't sign on to space, you sign on to the other infrastructure projects that China is offering. And it's what is so interesting to me is that this is just not limited to countries in the, say, in the second or third world. A country like Italy signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. 
a country like Northern Macedonia, which I visited uh, two years back, uh, signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. And the reason given to me was that it's because they require funds for their infrastructure development, which China is willing to give. They require cheap labor for developing that, and they require the expertise and very quick development of infrastructure. And then you have Luxembourg that signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, Luxembourg, really, that's oh, yeah. very interesting from the space yeah. ecosystem. Yes, because Luxembourg is one of the richest countries in the world with the highest mm -hmm. GDP per capita of about $110,000 per, per year annually. Now, the reason why Luxembourg signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative is because the, the quid pro quo was that once you sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative, the China bank will then post $500 million of Chinese bonds in their stock exchange. So there is this very interesting quid pro quo. And then the Chinese rationale for signing an MOU with Luxembourg was that Luxembourg had some of the most far-reaching space legislations. For example, if you have, say, a Chinese private company that sets up shop in Luxembourg, it can take, then take advantage of Luxembourg's asteroid mining legislation that actually enables that company to own those resources if they're able to bring it back or if they are, say, on a celestial body, right? And so it's very interesting how the ecosystem is developing. The other important point is that you have countries like New Zealand that are now part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, New Zealand is also part of the Five Eyes. So during the Second World War, you had the concept of the Five Eyes, which means that you had five intelligence uh, sharing uh, understanding between the US, Canada, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, Probably the UK. Yes, and the UK. Yes, and the UK. So, uh, and they are part of the Five Eyes. That particular, uh, you know, understanding continues today. And so, you have very separate intelligence sharing between the Five Eyes and then countries outside. Now, the critical point is that now New Zealand, despite the fact that it is a part of the Five Eyes, is also part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And then again, when the United States raised concerns about that, the, uh, and especially when they signed on to the Space Information Corridor, their argument was that they were in need of such investments. And uh, given the fact that China is able to invest so much for indirect investment into New Zealand, there is a rationale for such, uh, there's a draw within New Zealand for such investments. So you can see how the Belt and Road Initiative is part of a larger uh, ecosystem. It's not just about diplomacy. And it's not just about space. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation um, for the podcast, uh, you'll notice that the podcast is called Next Frontier. It's because I'm a space nut and a little space cadet myself. Um, but I wanted to, for myself and, and more importantly, for, my, for the, the folks listening, to really develop a sense of what the, the geopolitical innovation landscape, geopolitical development and infrastructure development landscape um, looks like through the lens of space policy. Um, and I think it's really interesting that we've uncovered that space policy, which is this next frontier, this final frontier, this, this innovative siren um, of, of hope for humanity and also a massive driver of United States capitalist technological development, which is so important and so fundamental, is also being used as a hook um, into some of these predatory practices uh, for with some of these other countries, uh, New Zealand and Luxembourg along, among them. Uh, and I think it's important for myself and for, for anyone who's working in innovation and in technology to have a sense of what is actually happening 
with the One Belt, One Road initiative, with some of these predatory financing practices, um, and with ha- with the overall overarching uh, strategic uh, way that space and other innovations are being used to kind of achieve this this great power, um, these great power victories on the world stage. Yeah, because if you look at the some of the conditions laid down, so one of the conditions that countries that sign on to with China, for example, if you want to establish a diplomatic relationship or want to become a member of the Belt and Road, you have to make sure and you have to actually give it in writing that you're not going to recognize the independence of Taiwan. So it is always connected to a very important Chinese core interest. And that's yeah. the point I want to make that then what happens is that if you have countries that sign on to, say, uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative or want to establish diplomatic relationship, including the U.S. So when the U.S. wanted to establish diplomatic relationship with China after the famous uh, Kissinger visit uh, in 1971, uh, when when the relationship was established in 72, uh, one of the conditions laid was that Taiwan issue has to be dealt with. And so the Thai, so the U.S. and China had, uh, sorry, the U.S. and Taiwan had uh, understanding uh, right up to Jim, when Jimmy Carter uh, ended it, that uh, the U.S. will come to the rescue or defense of Taiwan. Today, you don't have that Taiwan Security Act anymore because of the fact that the condition laid to the Carter administration for enhancing uh, relationship between uh, China and the U.S. was that U.S. would have to end that particular you know, guarantee. So there is a misunderstanding. People think that because the U- China has, uh, the U.S. has a security guarantee for a country like Japan, that that guarantee does not exist with Taiwan. But it yeah. is, it, it it is an understood fact that if something happens to Taiwan, the U.S. will support it or come to its rescue. But it's not, uh, it's not bound by any treaty obligation. So this is an interesting interesting extension of the conversation we were just having and a good transition into the, the resource conversation I'm, I'm hoping to have with you in the second third of this conversation. So Taiwan, if you look at, at what drives our economy right now, you, you find that it's really the ability to produce cheap, abundant semiconductors um, and other, other microelectronic devices um, that go along with semiconductors. Uh, and if you look at the global supply chain for for semiconductors and these other microelectronic devices, it pretty much all feeds through Taiwan. Um, so, so something I've been, I've been interested in writing a little bit about, haven't published anything about it when we're having this conversation, um, is, is from, a, from a where stuff comes from perspective and a question that every single entrepreneur, innovator, anyone who's manufacturing anything in the United States needs to be thinking about is okay, all of my digital technologies are driven by components that come through Taiwan. Taiwan is arguably one of the most important geographies for driving the high-tech economy. Um, And so it strikes me as no coincidence that China is so interested in Taiwan. And what happens if um, there is conflict, which apparently there will be in the next few years, between China and Taiwan? And how does that impact the, the... the semiconductor supply chain for the United States, and what do innovators, entrepreneurs, and industrialists do to kind of hedge against that as you're building your company? Because it's 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 a fantastic feat if you can create a new fully autonomous robot that can jump 20 stories, 
But what happens when you no longer have the basic computer chips that you need to go and run that, that robot? You can't get the latest and greatest five, five nanometer processors from Taiwan. Um, so, so in your experience, uh, how, does, that, does that come up in the conversation when, 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 when Taiwan comes into the picture beyond the, the China wants a one, 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 China, one, uh, one, one China policy and any, any historical claims that China wants to make against Taiwan? I don't really hear about the, the, the really tangible policy implications and economic implications of what happens if we no longer have Taiwan being a United States ally. Oh, yeah, it comes up. So it does come up. So uh, the concern, as you were mentioning, is that what happens if uh, China takes over Taiwan? Because as you said, Taiwan is the main supplier of semiconductor, mm -hmm. not to the US, but also to China. China mm -hmm. is very heavily dependent on Taiwan for such uh, supply chain uh, networks. So the one of the uh, important point is that how will that affect, uh, say, uh, global supply chain innovation? I think the one difference uh, here I would point out is that given the fact that China is part of the WTO since 20, 2001, I think it will hesitate to cut off supply chains. Similar, you saw a very similar behavior regarding COVID as well, right? So despite the fact that there was so much uh, anxiety over China, it was we, we finally realized the world is dependent on China for very critical supply chains with regard to medical equipment, ventilators, you know, almost everything, N95 masks in the beginning. Did you remember Remember the kind of scramble that was going on? With oh, the, totally. Yeah, so, so if China had decided to cut off supply chains because the world was so anxious on it, that could have created a huge crisis, including, uh, I think, a majority of American population depend on China for their medical supplies, including critical medicines. And so a similar supply chain, can we, we can talk about in terms of semiconductor as well. I think China, what it would try to do is that it would try to diversify the source of this by, because after all, it does want to make money as well. And you can see that happening already. So one of the important points is that if you look at, say, for example, uh, Foxconn that makes the important supply chips for an Apple iPhone. So uh, most of its manufacturing sector is actually in China. So the design and the technology and the originator of it is in Taiwan, Taipei, for example, but you then manufacture it in Shenzhen because, of course, labor is cheaper in China than it is in Taiwan. I think also innovators need to realize that China-Taiwan economic relationship is one of the deepest. So despite the fact that they have such political differences, they have very uh, critical economic uh, relationship, including, I think, uh, China is one of the largest investors in Taiwan's economy. And so there is this convergence as well. So I think the supply chain, I do not see, it, it would get disrupted in the beginning uh, a bit. But I think I say this with, of course, an optimistic air. Now, if you take a worst case scenario, it is very possible that China would cut off critical, uh, you know, uh, importance of, for example, how, as you said, how do you maintain a robot? How do you build that? There could be a possibility that in conflict, China might cut it off, you know, cut off that particular critical supply chain. So then, then what do you do? Do you have an alternate supply chain? At this point of time, we don't because we are heavily dependent on Taiwan, for example. And so say by 2030, under President Xi's uh, policy, he wants to take back Taiwan. Our 
prepared for a future where Taiwan becomes another province of China and then China holds the most critical supply chain infrastructure and is dominant in that. That is a critical question to actually realize in the innovation uh, atmosphere. I think one thing I noticed, for example, in the innovation cycle is that people don't seem to realize that innovation by itself is very exciting, but innovation has consequent effects on security. And it's a very critical uh, component to realize. I have seen your work, Max, on, say, rare earth material, right? Minerals, for example. China is a leader in it now and can actually manipulate the price as well because of the mm -hmm. fact that they are ahead. And that has critical uh, consequences for strategic industries. And you are much better placed to talk about that than me. But even from reading your article, I could realize that that is an amazing position to be in. And so we do have these conversations. What happens if Taiwan becomes a part of China? What happens if China blocks off Taiwan, say, in the first five years, right? So, so, so that is a scenario to consider. Now, I'll end by saying that a similar kind of conversation happened when uh, Hong Kong was taken over by China. So when that, the that was within the past 12 months, by, by the way, <laughs> which is pretty crazy yeah. to think about that that was less than 12 yeah. months ago. Yes, exactly. So um, Taiwan, when uh, when Taiwan became a part of China, Taiwan was actually the seat of the Western stock exchange, uh, you know, model. So we de the China depended on Taiwan, uh, sorry, Hong Kong, for getting access to the Western economic system, including stock exchange. But then, what did China do? China diversified. Now you have the Shanghai stock exchange, you have the Schengen uh, area coming up. So today, it's the Shanghai stock exchange, which is actually much more critical for China's engagement with the world than Hong Kong. And that's why when we talk about the the uh, protests in Hong Kong and the fear that how would this actually impact China, I don't think many of us realize that China had already diversified the, uh, you know, the critical components of connectivity to the world economy. And I see a very similar scenario with Taiwan. Definitely. So that that is probably a good transition point. I'll, I'll, I'd like to wrap up that segment by saying, I guess the innovation resource nugget there, the, the where stuff comes from nugget there is it's really important. I had a young entrepreneur who I was talking to today. He's starting a, a uh, consumer electronic device company. And he's like, man, I have no idea how we're going to scale up our, our PCBs, our printed circuit boards. I have no idea how we're going to do it. I'm talking to a bunch of Chinese suppliers. And I, I said to him cautiously, I said, China, China, totally, they have cheap products. Just pay attention and think about what happens if they cut off the United States for military reasons because they have their own internal crises and they're no longer able to produce or manufacture. Just think, just think about how can you diversify from the day one? How can you have a focus on, on having more local supply chains, having less volatile supply chains, having more reliable supply chains, even if it costs a little bit more? Can you take 20 to 40% of your production capacity to avoid getting looped in it. And, and this goes for, for countries that might fall under what we were talking about with the One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, just make sure that you're not at the whims of the Chinese government um, living in the United States or living in, again, one of these countries that are more allies. And we can get into what, what countries fall into that list, India. Um, how can you avoid finding yourself in a position where these, these predatory practices 
like offering free GPS to, to countries that might have cheap labor may end up impacting your business 10 or 15 years from now, maybe even five years from now. Uh, so I, maybe that's a good place to wrap that section um, and then use this as a transition point into where our work converges. So you're very focused right now, I, from my understanding, on, on what is the future of outer space resources look like? If someone goes to an asteroid or if, if, if a United States uh, enterprising industrialist individual goes to an asteroid, uh, they want to take the platinum in that asteroid and then they want to bring it back to Earth and use it for whatever, whatever purposes they're going to use it for. Um, that to me seems like the natural extension of the great power competition we've been talking about, where China is very, from what I've read of your work, is very set on building that infrastructure, being able to go mine asteroids. And the United States is also pretty set on making it possible for having profit incentives to go mine asteroids. So maybe to back up, if you could just explain to us, what would somebody want to use an asteroid for? Why is that a a, a valuable asset for someone to go and invest the capital and bring it back to Earth? Um, and is it something that we bring back to Earth to use platinum with? Is it something that we keep in space to go build massive O'Neill colonies? Let's let's paint, paint the picture for us and paint the picture for the audience of what is asteroid mining and what's the purpose? Sure. So uh, the importance of asteroid mining comes because an asteroid, for example, a very small asteroid that I talk about, just to give an example to the audience, is uh, Amum 3554. So it's a very small asteroid uh, in the asteroid belt. It's about uh, two kilometers in length. But the assessments given by NASA scientists and especially astrophysicist uh, John uh, Lewis in his book, Asteroid Mining 101, is that that asteroid consists about $20 trillion worth of iron ore, cobalt, platinum, titanium. So given the fact that there is uh, such critical uh, you know, minerals there in asteroids, that is why companies and individuals are talking about going to an asteroid, mining it, for example, to bring it back to Earth if you have the launch transportation ecosystem for that, or to continue using that, as you mentioned, to develop, say, a permanent base, say, on the moon, for example, if you want to bring resources back to the moon, or you want to go further from that. So that's the main contention of why we are looking at asteroids. And in the last few years, it's discovered that there are millions of them out there in space. Uh, the more you're looking out, the more you're getting to see how much is there. Now, uh, there are already countries that have done asteroid sample return. For example, Japan last year has landed with a sample return from an asteroid and is now going to offer us an assessment of what's on it. Uh, you had companies in the US like Planetary Resources, Deep Space Industry that were established, but they failed and failed to continue, not because the concept was not viable, it's because they failed to get funding. And that is always the case with any new uh, space startup or any startup. SpaceX had to depend on Elon Musk willing to spend his own fortune that he got, 200, I think $200 million, because it was failing. And then NASA had to give out contracts. And finally, they had to prove that they can go with the third launch of Falcon 9, if you remember. They were talked off. They said they couldn't do it. So any, any new company uh, needs that kind of funding, and that's the reason why they failed. Now, in terms of looking at the calculation of how much money you can actually get back if you invest in the beginning. Uh, so the, the, uh, what I get from assessments talking to engineers and scientists is that the 
investment to develop the capacity to go there and the investment to actually uh, develop the extraction capability is where the biggest investment will be for as is this with any infrastructure project so the beginning money to set up the gps system was expensive but once you set up the infrastructure in place it got much cheaper now the second important point that is being made is that once you have a reusable capability for example if say elon musk's starship is capable of launch in the next 5 years which is promising that actually will bring the launch cost down as well so the moment you have the drop in launch cost the entire transportation uh, system price comes down so then you have the concept of viability and commercial capability now why is china interested in asteroid mining very similar to the us so the chinese argument coming out from their uh space scientists in the china national space administration including uh yi peiyang who is the head of their lunar program is that china wants to go and invest in this capability for a very critical reason and that is in his conception which is supported by wang shishi who is the father of china's orbital rocket the first orbital rocket the long march 1 is that earth is going to run out of resources for example like cobalt so critical for batteries so what you would then need is to have access to those resources in space with the capability to either manufacture that somewhere in space or to bring it back so that you continue having the kind of development you have for example in china so those are the critical reasons why countries and individuals are starting to talk about asteroid mining and developing the capability to get there I have a few follow-up questions and if you're okay with me challenging you on on one of those yeah. one of your points that'd be wonderful. Um so let's let's maybe start with the earth running out of resources piece. Yeah. Um so a lot of people will look and they'll say at a in a long time okay maybe we might run out of resources. For me though I, my background's in material science and manufacturing and I'm always thinking about how can we close loop uh, supply chains and close loop ecosystems. um are we really running out of resources and what is the timeline for that look like and and how does um you know reuse and recycling play into the picture and then the the next question building on that is is if we flood the economy with a massive asteroid that has double the amount of platinum than we have in all of earth's supply does that really create wealth or just does that just totally oversaturate and then tank tank prices and then you end up back in a zero sum game where you kind of just have too much and no one can make any money from it because because it's an absolute abundance now I I think I'll deal your second question first so this this is a question which also uh actually uh our for example our ancestors if i may or people who came before us had to deal with with the concept of aluminum so aluminum at one time was a very rare earth metal And so if you look at the US uh Washington DC buildings some of the buildings have aluminum as part of their demonstration of wealth. I think so the top was, of the Washington monument yeah, is is aluminum. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it it was a very expensive uh at that time but today aluminum is not expensive it's available and guess what now we are able to have aluminum in almost several different categories including our house utensils right so a similar market will develop even if a, if you have more platinum you might actually have then the capability to use platinum in areas which we have not used it today very similar to aluminum so there is always a market that develops so 
the argument pe- given by people is that the price will fall but then it will also mean that you'll be able to use a particular mineral in much more sectors than you had used an example is of course aluminum now is the earth really running out of resources now if you look at the estimates that has come out from aramco which is saudi arabia's oil company with the largest one of the largest reserves their point is that they are able to sustain the level of development we are having today say only they say they have reserves till about say 2060 that is capable of sustaining the kind of development that developed world is having so we are not even including africa we are not including the sudden rise of a billion people in india who wants to have three cars in their houses right we just have in india most families have just one car the second car is unthinkable but today you have a rising middle class which is the size of the united states which wants two to three cars every son or daughter want their own car because they have the capability to buy it so if you're thinking of sustaining a lifestyle of the developed world by 2050 when the when the population of earth is going to be 9 billion it is only obvious that you look to space because that's where if you want to sustain that lifestyle that you require it because even companies that deal with oil and countries that deal with oil say that it's not a renewable resource and it's depleting given the fact that we are wanting it more and more now it's a completely different point if you have if you are able to develop a system that does not depend on oil for example electric cars right that becomes the staple for every human being but i was just looking at the price of a tesla car even the model 3 is 45000 unless you buy it used which is about $36,000 not many households in the developing world can buy this car and so it's it's not very cheap to get access to that and so an example i'll give you again is that the former uh, president of india abdul kalam who was also the head of india's nuclear program gave a very interesting talk in 20 2007 uh, at, in boston university he talked about the critical importance of a resource like say we have not talked about that not just asteroid mining but space based solar power so his argument was that if the world wants to have access to space based solar power and in his in his estimation so this is interesting when when futurists talk about a particular resource and its viability they they talk also about the context of population economy demand and supply So in his estimation if you have a population of 9 billion living the life of a developed family a family in a developed world the ratio of demand is going to be much higher and in his estimation he he talked about space based solar power wang shiji talked the chinese uh, you know founder of china space program talks about space based solar power and asteroid mining because in their estimation that's the only resource that is able to sustain that life without destroying earth's uh, atmosphere so they were also concerned about energy but they were also concerned about climate change so it's very interesting so abdul kalam's argument for space based solar power was that if you invest in a capability that is able to get resource outside of earth which is 24 hours it's a much more uh, advanced and much more superior resource than say ground solar So there are much many many interesting arguments made as to why earth might run out of resources depending on the demand and the population and population growth is not decreasing you know people think it's decreasing but countries like india is seeing a huge burst in population and so has the united states 
the replacement level is actually in the United States pretty high as well, and and also in Africa. So there's a there's a quote from my uh, uh, a mentor of mine where he says he says everything we hold of value is in your infinite abundance in space, and it, it is very relevant to this conversation. Um, I think he actually so, says yeah, that. And so, and, yeah. yeah, and Max, when I talk to people, say in Nigeria or say in, when I talk to students in India, say in a remote area, uh, they want to have access to the lifestyles that people in the developed world have. And and if you tell them that, no, you cannot have this because it's going to be bad for the climate, it's not a nice tale to tell. So and, and it's then, terrible. It's immoral in some in some some senses. Yeah. Yes, and so then and and so what is so fascinating is that I have had uh, I had conversations with a, a group of young uh, girls in a college in northeast India, one of the remote areas of India, just last month. And then when I talked about, so their main question to me was that, how do you sustain life in a way that does not destroy Earth, but gives us access to resources and capability that we actually deserve. You know, and so it was so interesting. They used the word deserved. And so and that's why I think the former president of India got it right that uh, if you really want to sustain Earth and have a lifestyle of good health and access to food and the material needs that we all want, the space has infinite possibilities. Now, now, the important point is that you have to do it sustainably and in a way that does not lead to the kind of conflicts they have on Earth over resources during the age of colonialism. So that's something also to be kept in mind. Definitely, I would. Um, I won't. I don't know that it's a good a good conversation to get into it here, but maybe I'll leave it as a little teaser for the audience. I'm hoping to have a conversation in the near future about energy policy and energy dynamics. Um, personally, I'll have to. I'll have to just throw my my hat in the ring and say I'm a big fan of nuclear, uh, particularly nuclear fusion, and I think that space is also an interesting platform for helping develop that. Um, because if we can send a nuclear reactor to the moon or Mars, we solve a lot of our problems from an energy consumption standpoint. Um, so I, I will leave that for a separate conversation. Uh, I will also build on what you were saying, and it's an interesting dynamic that will evolve, particularly as as China, which right now a lot of people call it the world's factory, <clears throat> uh, looks to a lot of these a lot of these second and third world countries to to implement some of the predatory financing practices that we were talking about. Um, and I imagine that they're going to start shifting their labor base and being the factory of the world in China to some of the second and third world countries so that they can raise up their own middle class in China um, and get some, you know, while maintaining because they are a command and control economy, their own ability to produce things. But I imagine they're going to want to start offshoring not to poor, poor parts of the world. What happens when when the countries that we're currently using as our factory and the cheap labor we're currently using um, achieve a standard of living where they no longer are able and willing to produce within their own countries. Um, that's an entirely different and interesting dynamic that we have that we probably don't have the time here to dive into. And I, there are a bunch of other conversations I'd like to have. Um, so, so returning back to the asteroid mining piece of this conversation, China's resource... Uh, situation. They have a lot of domestic resources under the ground in China, uh, and they are working very hard to dominate global supplies of other resources, like you mentioned, um, you know, possibly predatorily uh, 
trying to control the price on some of these commodities and other resources. But for the, for the most part, China's pretty resource endowed and they're adding to that resource endowment every day. Do you view their, in, their encroachment into asteroid mining as a way to extend their resource endowment long into the future, thinking say 100, 200 years out? Um, and is the US approach along similar lines? And I would imagine the US approach is, is likewise um, driven much more by by profit incentives and trying to push the bounds of innovation and exploration. So could you maybe talk about what's driving China to, from a right now perspective, how they're thinking about resources investing into the future? Sure, absolutely. So uh, if I just speak about China here, so in China's perspective, uh, space and the utilization of resources is part of a very critical grand strategic thinking that they have forwarded especially after, uh, this started especially after Deng Xiaoping. So a bit of history is important here. So when Deng became premier in 19, uh, when he opened up China's economy in 1978 and became premier after Mao Zedong died, his basic argument was that the most important point here is China needs to have the capability to have an advanced life under communism, but also will must have the capability to have uh, resources that do not get depleted. So those were the two important contentions in his mind. This particular conversation was continued, and especially under Hu Zingtao, who is a technocrat himself, he's not. So this is again important. Hu Zingtao, who was premier before President Xi, was a technocrat. He understood the importance of the development of technology. He understood the importance of creating a Chinese economy that does not deplete their own resources, but have access to resources from outside. And that's where you see an uptick of conversation with regard to how China needs to have a very long-term plan in terms of looking at resources outside of China, including outside of Earth. And I would say that most of that motivation also came from the conversations happening in the U.S. Because you had uh, lead thinkers, for example, Paul Spudis, who talked about resources on the moon, his book, on the moon is critical on this, where he talks about how you use robotic infrastructure and not human beings to access resources, build that particular ecosystem where you have fast software, artificial intelligence, enhanced manufacturing, which is all happening today. He's, he talked about this in the 1980s and the 1990s. And then you had Dennis Wingo with his book called Moon Rush, who also talked about this concept. And what is interesting is that scientific conversations and capability development is a global common. So you had these conversations influence Chinese thinking as well. And so China started talking about having a space resource utilization policy around 2000. So it was in 2000 when they first started conceptualizing the moon, not just as a place to show off human landing, but actually to develop robotic capability to go there, land on the far side, assess what the far side is about, land uh, and basically show a capability to have a lunar return and also to continue the development by then going to the lunar south pole. And why the moon? Because in their context, once you establish mastery of the moon, that's when asteroid mining comes in. Now, this is very interesting. For China, capacity development is not simultaneous. It's incremental development of capacity. The first capacity they wanted to develop was permanent presence in low Earth orbit. It was not about the moon. 
So you send the Tiangong 1 and the Tiangong 2 for a temporary uh, permanent space station. You had Chinese taikonauts that basically showed you that they can live there for a month and, and sustain themselves with cargo supply from Earth. Then now in 2022, they plan to have a permanent space station, which will actually be an alternative to the International Space Station, where, which they are launching components of it this year and finally manufacturing it, in, basically assembling it in space, if not manufacturing, sorry, and then basically have that as an alternative. And then the next step is to go to the Lunar South Pole, establish, survey, and develop the capability to extract the resources. For example, one of the resources that they're really looking for, which, can, which comes to your point about nuclear fusion, is helium-3. So the moon has helium-3, and so their argument is that if you want to really become a spacefaring civilization with nuclear fusion capability, which hasn't been practiced yet, you need to have access to helium-3. And one of the areas in the universe is the moon. And so their argument is that once you develop the capability to become a civilization that has the ability to have presence on the moon, only then can you start talking about further development of capability, including asteroid mining. Now, that's the incremental strategy of development. But what is critical is that they started all their programs at the same time. So they have an asteroid mining unit within the China Academy of Sciences, which is their main body for development of capability. Their lunar capability was funded separately under the China Lunar Exploration Program. And then their aim, and this is so interesting, in one of their aims, they want to have some sense of asteroid sample study by 2034. So the next five, 10 years is going to be very critical for China. And the difference between the China and the US is that in, the, in China, the conversation about developing asteroid extraction capability, mining, looking at space from a utilization perspective is a state discourse. It's not limited to private sector or private individuals. It is supported at the highest level. In the US, it is not still a state policy. I think just because individuals are talking about it or private sector is talking about it it is not at the level of space space national policy as well you're still talking about concepts here legal concepts like utilization international partnership you haven't got to the policy conversation about actual extraction and mining of those resources that hasn't yet happened in the u.s even the conversation so that's yeah it's yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how the United States' emerging yet mature uh, new space ecosystem um, fares as a private enterprise and a profit-driven enterprise versus the, the CCP's um, top-down government-funded uh, you know, ex extraction, mining, resource utilization, and spacefaring enterprise. Uh, and I think, how much did China spend on space last year? Like only like $8 billion, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, they spend about uh, so in their so so they spend about eight billion annually, but we don't know because they don't yeah. don't put up uh, like their military. We we don't know. So the for for example, with their military, uh, the International Institute of Strategic Studies, I think, uh, points out that they spend about uh, I think hundred and fifty to two hundred and between hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty million dollars. So we don't know. That's the problem because they do not come up with their their figures, unlike the US where we know yeah. how much spending, right? And so a uh, similar cases in space. The other point is that we are only talking about civilian space expenditure. You have military space expenditure. 
you have about two billion that has been invested in the Chinese private sector. So if you if you actually count all that, it is much more than eight billion dollars. So and 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 the and again the argument. So I asked this question when I was in China about the return of investment on say eight billion. So the argument made was that in China the cost of uh, maintaining a scientist or a facility is much lower as well. Yeah. So a Chinese-based scientist would earn about, I think, three thousand dollars, or in the in the rough estimate of three thousand to four thousand a month. A NASA scientist at the most basic level earns about nine thousand dollars. Yeah, you know, lab- labor for assembly and these types of things is probably infinitely cheaper, cheaper as well. Cheaper. Yeah, um, that's interesting, and, and it's interesting too. Hopefully, SpaceX is able to, you know, continue raising the way that they've been raising, and it it seems that the that the private markets in the U.S. are looking to put the capital that's required into United Space space companies. So, I guess we shall see how that unfolds. And uh, and to the audience, um, it's really interesting to think about these different these different competitive models, um, and also where your company might fit into this ecosystem, and, and how and I, and I would ask you and challenge you, how can you help the United States um, through the private sector forward think about how we can have a a sustainable and into the future sustainable in the future, so a steady supply of resources in, into the future, and and Namrata, I wanted to have this conversation exactly for insights from you that were I think are brilliant. Like the fact that, hey, China's going to the moon to mine helium-3 because they see the potential of nuclear fusion and they view that as a further driver for space and also back on Earth. I think that's precisely the insight I was trying, I was, I was hoping to take away. So thank you so much for that. Um, I did not know that. And I think that that's an interesting kind of systems thinking perspective that is also helpful for the audience um, when they're thinking about how these different innovation resources, geopolitical events, uh, geopolitical policies and kind of strategic thinking are all weaving together at the convergence of space uh, with one belt, one road initiatives, with what's happening in some second and third world countries, with what's happening in the United States, with what's happening in China. So that was a really awesome point that I think ties everything together really well uh, in a very specific way. Um, so thank you so much for that. To wrap up the conversation, I always love to kind of dive in and just learn a little bit more about, about the guests that I'm having on. Um, so I, I would love it if you could share where you're from and how you kind of came into to your love of space and and kind of, I don't know if it's a love of space or if it's a love of international policy, but what, what drives you and, and where that came from? Sure. Um, uh, before I get to that, I just want to make a final point is that uh-huh. so um, the U.S. talks a lot about, at least at the state level, uh, the U.S. talks a lot about uh, missions. So it's about mission to Mars or mission to the moon. I think the conversation within China is about activity. So they talk about missions, but they're more focused on activity on a particular area. So you develop the capability for same mining. So that's a critical difference. And I think the other point I wanted to make is that the one good part about the rise of companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX is that despite the change in administration, they will continue developing their capabilities. So just because you have a Biden administration, uh, Elon Musk will not stop developing Starship. So that's something that the private sector actually brings to bear and which is continuity. Now, coming to me, uh, I grew up in a very small town uh, in Northeast India, which is the border. So this is an area in India which borders China, Bangladesh, Bhutan, and and, uh, Myanmar, Burma. Uh, And so I I started... uh, 
getting excited about space from a very young age because of science fiction. Like all of you, I enjoyed watching Star, uh, Star Trek and Star Wars and was, uh, and was fascinated by space. But also, um, I grew up in an area where uh, I mentioned in my TED Talk, I had so much access to the beauty of the universe because we, never, we used to lose power very often. We had very limited access to electricity, and especially when landslides happened, we lost power. And so I could see the night sky and the Milky Way, and that was a big, big fascination. Now, my interest in space policy uh, started actually when I shifted to the U.S., where a colleague of mine encouraged me to work on this particular area because I had expertise on international relations and grand strategy, and so uh, and Asia particularly. And so it's it's but natural because you have major spacefaring nations like Japan, India, and China, which are located in Asia, and which all have very far-reaching goals. And so it was a very uh, very it was a great fit to use my expertise in international relations, grand strategy, strategic culture, to then study space, especially the contribution of space to not just the military or politics, but the contribution of space to society and innovation. And the important point I learned from studying this is that people don't realize but space has become such an integral part of our lives that rich civilization and society and discourse actually has more, uh, is more attractive is actually going to depend on which country has the most long-term innovative uh, understanding of what space means to the particular civilization. And so such concepts uh, very much inspired me to take up space. And I, have had, I haven't regretted my decision at all. It's been a very enjoyable journey, a learning experience and, and deeply rewarding. When you were getting into space, did you did you pursue any any technical training? Was it more going and diving and just straight into the policy? What what did your your path transitioning from kind of international policy and uh, policy policy uh, and other and other foreign affairs? How did how did you you know more tactically do that uh, approach that that thought leadership transition? So I had to uh, so the, I, I spent about two years just studying. Uh, space policy. So I, I transitioned from grand strategy to understanding space policy. But then the important point is that I have a PhD in international relations with specialization in political science. And so um, the one thing where I really had to self-educate was, for example, what do you mean when you say a reusable rocket? What do you mean when you say launching from the moon is better than launching from Earth? So I had to study. Uh, it took me about a year and a half to just understand those technical details. And it's self-education. I did not take any course or I did not, uh, you know, uh, join any program. But, but the important point is that for understanding and, and working on space policy and looking at great power competition, you need to have that understanding of what does a reusable rocket, for example, give China? What is the advantage, right? But I don't think you need uh, the, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to pursue space policy. And that was a great uh, experience for me to learn that. When I still remember, to- you know, when I wrote a piece for the Washington Post, the science editor wanted me to explain what I mean by saying that the launch from the moon is uh, much more cost uh, effective than say launching from earth. And so it was a fun puzzle to, to crack. And so it was, it was interesting. It was a learning experience for me in that particular context. 
Yeah, asking the right questions and getting really good at Googling, I imagine, was probably a, a good piece of the uh, of the puzzle. And books, uh, as I said, John, the, the foundational books. I mean, if you really want to get into space policy, uh, you should read, uh, especially if you want to get into space resource, you need to read Dennis Wingo, uh, John Lewis, John Mankins, fantastic books. They are written by scientists, but and, and then of course, Robert Zubrin, The Case for Space and The Case for Mars. Case fantastic. for Mars is a great book, yeah. Yes, yes, so you, you, there, there is such great literature, including on space power. You have General Bernard Shriver from the US Air Force that was such a far reaching strategic thinker. It's, it's absolutely a beauty to read the kind of speeches and the kind of conversations that they had. So there is so much literature and good books that can help educate you. And are you do you do you dabble in the more in the more hobbyist uh, parts of space, whether it be you know little rocket launches or telescoping? What is your what is your your space hobby set look like, if if at all? Telescoping. So telescoping. I, I had such a good time just uh, in December when there was the Jupiter uh, and Saturn came very close. So I have a telescope at home. So I love looking at planets and I like looking at the moon. I like looking at the craters and uh, I am, I, I wish I had direct access to the far side as well, <laughs> which I don't. So yeah, telescoping is one of my biggest, uh, has, has become one of my biggest hobbies. And I think the other uh, thing that I do is I watch, I watch and read science fiction. And so one of the shows that I just finished watching is The Expanse. So if anybody interested in looking at geopolitics and space and looking at it from a fictional perspective, including where they get the physics right, I think Expanse is a fantastic show. I would, I would urge uh, your audience to watch it if they haven't. Uh, it gives you uh, access to identity issues, resources issues, what happens, exactly the questions you're asking. What happens if someone, uh, for example, Mars stops off a supply chain to Earth? or say the Belter community uh, does not supply the resources for Earth, what happens then? So, De it Definitely, I, I, I think science fiction, and, and I'm so happy you brought that up as a, as a innovation resource from a creativity perspective and a, um, and a kind of closing your eyes and just imagining what could be perspective and bringing some of that back down to, to reality and the here and now, so important. Um, yeah, because if you look at China, one of the books I read on China is the Chinese science fiction author Li Shixing. So Dark Forest uh, and the Three-Body Problem. But I would say that anybody interested in how China's future uh, space policy is going to at least a fictional perspective, if not, uh, I don't take it too seriously, but it's fascinating. It gives you insights into the kind of thinking happening in China. And so the, three, the Dark Forest actually gives you an idea that China is also thinking about the kind of space force and the conversations about whether it should be a naval rank or an air force rank. What is their role going to be? What is their role going to be when you have resources, say, coming from outside of Earth? Absolutely fascinating strategic questions dealt by the particular science fiction book. And so that's a great book to read as well. Awesome. I, I, personally, I think that Star Wars is a very underrated um, work of science fiction when it comes to the the more macro kind of like philosophical and geopolitical takeaways that you can you can find from from studying how you know the, the fictional events actually unfold um and i think it, it does it is a little bit reflective of of 
of China United States geopolitics, but we can we can spare the audience from me geeking out about Star Wars uh, on this on this interview. So it looks like we are coming up right at the end of our conversation, Namrata. I would love to end by asking you how can people learn more about you? How can people engage with you? Do you have any calls to action for the audience? Um, I think uh, uh, I, I would deal with the calls to action. I think, as uh, Max mentioned, it's really important to understand that space does not happen in a vacuum. It is not uh, a discipline. That was, that was extremely punny. <laughs> <laughs> I know, especially the context in which you're, yeah. you're yes. So, um, I, I, <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, I think it's critical that we realize that space is deeply connected to uh, other components of grand strategy, security and thinking and societal innovation. And so that's the one point. So especially your, your audience who are looking for innovation and working on uh, space startups, it's critical to realize that it's all connected. It's not that you just do innovation at one level and space policy happens at another level. They're both connected. And I think uh, that's the point I would, I would make. And people who want to reach out to me, I am very much excited on LinkedIn. So it's by my name, Namrata Goswami, and I am very quick at responding to messages as well. I think that's the best way to reach me. Awesome. And we'll put a link to the show notes for that. And for anyone who didn't get the joke, uh, space is a vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> so by definition, space has to happen in a vacuum, but I guess yeah. it, it doesn't, it doesn't more esoterically. Um, yeah, but, but you got what I meant. <laughs> I understood what you meant. Yes. It was just the, the, the scientist to me was, was laughing yes, his ass yes, off. Great. Great. You um, made me laugh at the end of your show. Fantastic. <laughs> wonderful. All right. Well, well, thank you so much, Namrata. And we will link to your contact info in the description. We'll have detailed show notes. Uh, we'll link to your books as well, which I don't think that we had the opportunity to touch on but are fascinating so i encourage everyone to go check those out and thank you so much for coming on the show to kick off 2021 and i wish you a successful healthy happy and space-faring year thank you for tuning into this episode of the next frontier podcast if you like this content please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. We have out of this world content coming your way over the next few months. Hope that you enjoy and stay tuned.